Please join me in prayer. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Father, we pause to give you thanks for the many ways that you've shown kindness towards us and towards all that you have made. You have given us life, every breath that sustains us, and more blessings than we could number or remember. Most importantly, you've shown your love for us in the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the means of grace and the hope of glory. Truly, every good and perfect gift comes down from you. Even more than this, you invite us to bring our cares and concerns to you. And so trusting in your goodness, we pray for Bill and Cindy Hay, and Mike and Sandy Witten, as Bill and Mike receive cancer treatments. We pray that those treatments would be effective and would bring a restoration of health. We ask that you would give grace to Sandy and Cindy as they care for them, and remind and assure Bill and Cindy, Mike and Sandy, of your love in spite of their current circumstances. We remember Ursula Mikowski as she is bedridden. Grant her peace and recovery. Please protect her from loneliness during this tough season. We pray for John Stone and his family as they care for his father, Lee. Grant them wisdom as they make difficult decisions and work by your spirit to foster unity and love in this situation. We thank you for the work of Judd and Jan Lamus who serve in Belgium, and we ask that you would bless their ministry there. Grant them encouragement and steadfastness in the work that you've called them to, and raise up friends and partners around them. As Reverend Holt comes to open your word, we pray that Holy Spirit would bless its proclamation and that your church would be strengthened through it. O oh God, you make us glad by the yearly remembrance of the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that we who joyfully receive him as our Redeemer may with sure confidence behold him when he comes to be our judge. He who lives and reigns with you in Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Waiting is hard. I'm almost 55 years old, but I can remember being a young boy in my parents' house on Christmas Eve where hours felt like months. Waiting is difficult, especially when you're anticipating something wonderful. Waiting's hard when you're waiting on medical results. Waiting hard, waiting is hard when you're waiting on a job offer. Waiting's hard when you're waiting on a loved one to finish the medical procedures they're going through that's taken so much energy and strength out of them. Waiting is hard. Uh, we've been in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers for quite a long time. You've been waiting to get to the New Testament and it's Christmas Eve. So we're in the gospel of Matthew. And uh, so you win. And uh, so great. Here we are at the beginning of the gospel, beginning of the New Testament. And just as you hoped and expected, it's a genealogy. There you go. Genealogies are hard for us to relate to. Uh, Sandy Wilson, uh, recent, our recent interim pastor, was at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church uh, 
a couple decades ago and he was in uh, the room where the session met. They designed it to be the most intimidating room in the church and succeeded. And there were pictures of all the former pastors uh, in the wall and Sandy was in there uh, with an elder who'd been an elder of that church for decades and, uh, and, and Sandy was just going to see who all he could name. And he pointed to George Long, the most recent senior pastor. He said, who's that? And he said, George Long. And he pointed to the next guy. He said, who's that? He said, Sam Wiley. He pointed to the next guy back and said, who's that? He goes, I recognize him. I don't remember his name. That's what our world is like. Uh, children often uh, can't name the actual names of their great-grandparents. It's hard for us to relate to a genealogy, but before we read this, I want you to understand that a genealogy is like an ancient world LinkedIn profile. It tells you who someone is, what their role is, and why they are important. So as I read it, and we're just reading a portion of the genealogy, I hope you'll keep that in mind. This is intended by Matthew, the gospel author, to point to Jesus Christ, tell us who he is, tell us why he came, tell us why he's important to lift up our hearts and our eyes to see him in his glory. So please read along with me from Matthew 1. I'm going to read, read verses 1 through 6 and then also verse 16 and 17. We'll see more of Matthew 1 later tonight. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Verse 16, and a later Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, help us see how astoundingly impressive this genealogy is and how surprisingly inclusive your kingdom is. And remind us once again conclusively that we need a great Savior and have one in your Son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit in his name. Amen. Matthew's good news is launched with this genealogy, this ancient world linked in profile and for good reason. The good news is about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And this gene- genealogy tells us some very critical things about who Jesus is, and also infer some significant things about us. But I want us to see that this genealogy teaches us that Jesus is impressive in his resume. He fits in the story in a very central and significant way. It's a very impressive resume, this genealogy is. But also, I want us to see it here, and Matthew wants to see that his kingdom is surprisingly inclusive. 
And then finally, we'll see quite conclusively that we're the kind of people that need a king like Jesus, and he's the kind of king that we need. So let's uh, dive in just for a minute. Uh, we talked about waiting is hard. You need to understand this to understand how this genealogy worked. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and then King David, uh, they were waiting, waiting, waiting for a very special king. Uh, they had... God had led them into the promised land and for a while they lived there and did well, but they rebelled against God. They were unfaithful and God kicked them out of the land. That's what this line about the deportation to Babylon is. Uh, The people of Israel ended up in exile and in great misery because of their unfaithfulness. And when they were in exile, they were waiting for a king like David to come and rescue them, to defeat their enemies and bring them peace. And then even after the exile, they were back in Jerusalem, but nothing was the way it was supposed to be. God had fulfilled some of his promises and he'd rescued them from exile and brought them to Jerusalem, but there wasn't a clear king and the people weren't thriving and everyone was still struggling. And by the time Matthew was born, the people of God were living under a really wicked series of kings that were quasi the people of God, and they were also living under uh, the heavy hand of a heavy empire, the Roman Empire. And so the people of God were waiting and waiting and waiting for the true king, the long-promised king, to show up. And Matthew's genealogy is trying to tell you and me that Jesus is that king, that his lineage is very impressive. So let's look at that just for a minute there in the first six verses Uh, Matthew wants to show us this good news, that Jesus's roots are very impressive. And he really pulls two things together. First of all, the patriarchs, the people who were promised the blessing, and also the royal line, the narrow way that the blessings to God's people would come through the line of a king. So hold those things together. Uh, Look with me, first of all, in verse one, this is the book of the genealogy, the Genesis-like root story of Jesus the Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the very first verse, Matthew is telling us the story, the good news he's gonna tell us about Jesus. He's gonna connect Jesus to the family that God promised to bless and make them a conduit of God's blessing to the royal line that God set apart and said, I will work through this royal line. The family of Abraham, the family of blessing, the family of David, one of his descendants, the royal line. From the very beginning, Matthew wants you to know God's blessing will come through this one and he is in that royal line. That's how God will work it out. Look at verse two. He, all of a sudden, he just runs into the names of the blessed patriarchs. Abraham, father of Isaac. Isaac, father of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who's listed here at the beginning. And those names meant the world to Matthew's original audience. Matthew himself was a Jewish author, and he's writing largely to a Jewish Jewish audience, though not exclusively for sure. But for those first century Jews hearing Matthew's story, just to be hear the names, oh, this is the genealogy of Jesus. He is the seed, the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is an ancient way to ring a bell and say, remember, remember, God has promised to bless a particular family and bless all the families of the earth through that family. God had set what fa- one family aside, the family of Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob and said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you the conduit of my blessing. I'm going to bless you so abundantly. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. And by starting there, Matthew is connecting the person of Jesus and the story of Jesus with those great, huge, big promises. The promises to bless and make his people a conduit of blessings. And then it goes right into not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. And he settles in. And I remember uh, Jacob had 12 sons, but he's focusing on Judah for a reason. Why does he narrow in and focus on Judah? The beginning of the first book of the Bible tells us from chapter 12 um, all, all the way up to nearly the end, tells us, look at this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the family that God, God tends to bless and make them a conduit of his blessing. But by the end of Genesis, as Henry explained and read for us earlier, by the end of Genesis, there's one son in that family, Judah. And what did his dying father say that turned out to be a prophecy? The scepter, the royal rod, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. No, the rod will not not be removed from his feet. The, The royal king... The real king, Genesis 49, verse 9, the king is going to come through this family. And so you've got this promise to bless this family and bless families through him. But then it's narrowed. Somehow God is going to pull off his big, huge promises to bless through a royal son from this family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what this genealogy is telling you from the very beginning. Uh, If you were a first century Jew, I'm telling you, this is a very impressive LinkedIn profile. All the right names are on the sheet of paper. You're very impressed by this. You're like, this is the guy I want to go with. And you're, and you're convinced of that. Look at what verse 6 says. He goes from Salmon to Boaz to Obed in verse 5. And then the son of Obed, Jesse. And then there's, there's one person in the list that has a title next to his name. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. This is where Matthew's slowing down and saying, just in case you don't know what this genealogy is about... I'm just going to remind you that David, he's the one in that family line of Judah, the shepherd of Bethlehem, raised up as the greatest king in the history of Israel. And so once again, Matthew started by, hey, this one, he's the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hey, he's in the line of Judah, but not just in the line of Judah in that broad sense. This one is a son of David. David, the king, uh, Matthew is jumping up and down to tell us that Jesus is the long awaited king and Messiah of Israel. And so that's what he does in verse 16. He gets to Jacob, uh, the, 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 the latter Jacob in the genealogy and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So just in case you weren't clear about it. He's called Messiah. He's called Christ. He's called the anointed one. And we'll say more about that tonight. But then look at what, what does he say? And David was the father of Solomon, uh, the, the, that the wisest king in the history of Israel. As a matter of fact, Solomon was the son of David who built the temple. Once again, Jesus's LinkedIn profile, his ancient version of that is looking very, very impressive. And that leads to verse 17. So all the generations, and then he does this, he, he divides the genealogy up. He doesn't list everyone he could possibly list. He's being very intentional, and he divides the genealogy up into three sets of 14. From Abraham to David, 14. From, a, from David to the exile, 14. From the 
exiled to the Christ, 14. And so even using that number 14, I know this sounds really weird to us, but that 14 first century Jewish people are like, oh, I know what that is. That's a double seven. That's like a double fulfillment. Oh, I got it. And that's exactly what Matthew's doing. Remember, he's a tax collector. He's an accountant. He likes numbers. And he's using them here in this context to tell you in every way he can, Jesus is the king that Israel had been waiting for. He's announcing him. He's the true king, the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, he's, he's the king, but he's the king that's going to make sure that the blessings flow to this family and through them. God has a plan to bless all the families of the earth through this family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is the seed of Abraham and in the royal lineage of that family, but more than just in it, Jesus is the seed who is the key to blessing and the long-awaited royal figure that guarantees the blessing will come to the nations. That's the impressive claim that Matthew's making in his genealogy introducing his good news story. But Matthew has more good news and that you can't miss. This impressive LinkedIn leader has entered an inclusive story. And I want you to see that with me as well. This very impressive king entering into this very impressive story is entering a very surprisingly inclusive story. So let's look at that for just a minute. Uh, you, may have known, you may have known this, but in the ancient world, uh, inheritance were passed down through, the, through the, the line of the father. And if you go look up, if you, if you could find 900 ancient world genealogies, you're almost never going to see any women listed. It doesn't mean they weren't important. It was just how legal things and financial things were passed from generation to generation through the father and his name. That's one reason why uh, if a man died and left his wife a widow, they expected his brother to come along and with that widow create heirs for the dead son so that, so that she could inherit. Um, that was just the way the ancient world worked. And so it's, it's not surprising, though, in this story, because there's some really important matriarchs in the story. You know, you got this long story, and, and it's Abraham and Sarah that have Isaac. So, you know, you can understand including Sarah in there. And, you know, it's Isaac and Rebecca, and they waited and waited and waited. You know, Rebecca was waiting uh, to, to have Jacob, and then you've got Jacob. He had two wives, which was a mistake, but it, it produced, in God's grace, the 12 uh, uh, heads of Israel. So, I mean, you'd expect to have Rachel and Leah in there for sure. You could understand that. It's just that none of those women are named in this genealogy of this very impressive genealogy about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's five women almost named in the genealogy. Uh, four of them are named. Mary is the fifth woman in the genealogy. But the first four aren't completely named, but three of them are named. And the four women listed before Mary, they're all Gentiles. It's not the matriarchs, but Tamar was a Canaanite. It's almost as if God has a plan to save the nations. And Rahab was a Canaanite. She lived in the military garrison of Jericho as God's people first went into that land. And Ruth, well, she's a Gentile too, but she's not a Canaanite. This might sound familiar. Ruth was from Moab. I wonder if that listing of that nation rings any bells for you. Uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, we've been reading the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, uh, God's people are in the plains of Moab right before they go on the promised land. They're, they're waiting and waiting. They're, it's like Christmas Eve. They're about to go in and get all the good stuff. 
But they're waiting on the plains of Moab. And while they're waiting, one of their enemies, Balak, the king of Moab, goes and hires an ancient hitman sorcerer named Balaam. And the king of Moab wants to curse God's people. And he hires Balaam and offers him big money, a big payday to do it. So what in the world is Ruth the Moabite doing in this story? It's a surprisingly inclusive story, and Matthew knows something about that. What's a Moabite woman doing in this impressive LinkedIn profile? I mean, just how inclusive of a story is Matthew telling us here? See, Jesus is entering in to a story that's very impressive from one really important angle, but there's a lot more going on in this genealogy than just impressive names and big promises. Jesus has come to be the savior of the nations and there's hints and reminders about that in the story. We've seen that it's impressive and inclusive, including women as they should have and many Gentiles. Well, Matthew, the tax collector, knew a thing or two about being a religious outsider. You might not be surprised to see Matthew the tax collector write a genealogy like this and include hints about how inclusive God's kingdom is. Now, he had one more point in this ancient world LinkedIn profile of King Jesus, and it's really conclusive both about Jesus and also about us. This impressive and inclusive genealogy includes not just the needy, but also the naughty. Please see along with me quite conclusively how Matthew has made his list and checked it twice to help us find out God's people are naughty, not nice. You see, Matthew understood this. He, he was the kind of person that impressive religious people avoided. He was a tax collector. He was bilking God's people and thereby helping the Romans. He was the exact kind of people, kind of person that that impressive religious people avoided. Matthew understood that. He didn't see himself as the kind of person that would put on his best clothes and attend a Christmas Eve service. He, He wasn't that kind of guy. As a matter of fact, he was sitting one day at his booth collecting taxes from God's covenant people, part of which went to the Roman Empire. And he's sitting there just doing his dirty little job that made him a religious outsider. But Jesus, the one he's writing about in this genealogy, Jesus walked up to him at the tax collecting booth in front of everybody. And Jesus had called a few disciples, but not all 12. And Jesus looked like right at Levi or Matthew as he was called, looked at him and said, Levi or Matthew, I want you to follow me. I mean, you could have picked Matthew up off the floor with a feather, knocked him out of his seat. But you know what he did? This tax collector, this bad guy, this naughty guy who didn't see himself as the kind of person that fit in. He got up and left his tax booth and followed Jesus. Matthew knows a thing or two about the kind of people that Jesus came to save we're naughty, not nice. And he came to rescue people like you and me. I told you recently about my friend, uh, Dan Earl, that uh, traveled the world. He died a couple of weeks ago. Before that, uh, he, he traveled the world uh, helping all kinds of people with disabilities. And uh, 
One day he was preaching a story I told you about a a woman that he met from Romania named Maria. And he was describing in his sermon, just kind of telling the story about how God had worked in her life and and what he'd done in Romania. And in his sermon, he was in Chile in the sermon. um, And there was a man listening on an island as he preached. And he he told Maria's story and and he told how Maria had shared with him that she was severely mistreated because of her disabilities, that people spat at her and called her names and avoided her and treated her like she had no dignity because of her disabilities. And he's, he's telling the story in a sermon over the radio in Chile and this guy here is on that island. Well, that guy was deeply convicted by uh, Dan's sermon and his story about Maria. And so he got on the boat and went from that island to Chile. He called the radio station. He figured out who Dan was and where he was. And, and Dan, uh, th- that guy came and tracked Dan down and grabbed him and said, Thank you, Brother Dan, for your, the sermon you preached on the radio. I want you to know I'm the person that spits at people like Maria. I'm the person that treats them like they have no dignity. I'm the person that's cruel and unkind. And I want you to know, Dan, I'm a pastor. And I needed to hear what you said in your story. I needed to consider that everyone was made in the image of God. See, what we're going to see in this genealogy, this final conclusive point, it's often the very covenant people of God who are at their absolute worst. But we serve a very merciful, gracious, and kind God who rescues us because he's willing to give his absolute best just for a minute, we're not going to do every single woman listed in the list, but I want you to know sometimes we think of the women as the bad people in the list, but that's not really true. Uh, there's two women in the list that are getting in a deep relationship with two of the men who behave the worst in the list. Do you remember that God has the blessings going to come to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their family? Yes, that's where the blessings are going to come. This has become through the royal line, the royal line of Judah and the royal line of David. Well, this genealogy reminds us that Judah and David at times were the worst of us. See, Judah, uh, he uh, brings one into this line, the very line that Jesus comes into through his daughter-in-law, Tamar. How did that story play out? (laughs) See, uh, what kind of man was Judah? Judah was like the third uh, Cain in the story. He was like a second Esau in the story. At one point, uh, Judah and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery They sold one of their brothers into bondage in Egypt. And Judah was so stricken in his conscience, he bailed on the whole covenant family and went off and lived on his own. And Judah ended up marrying a woman who was a Canaanite, not part of the covenant family. And uh, Judah and that woman uh, had three sons. And the first one was Ur, and then Onan, and then Shelah. And, and this is the kind of person that Judah had become in his guilt and his running from the covenant family and running from all God's promises. He'd become a really wicked man. So wicked, he raised a wicked son. So at one point, the Lord just put Ur to death because he was so wicked. And when he died, see, now his wife is a widow, Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, Ur's uh, wife is now a widow. Ur's, Ur has died. And so his little brother Onan has a duty to do. Onan is supposed to go be with Tamar and make sure she has sons who can inherit uh, whatever uh, she has to inherit from the father's possessions. Otherwise, she'll just be a poor widow with nothing to her name. So uh, Onan exploits this situation. He is not faithful. He doesn't give her what she needs, but he does take advantage of her in her 
plight as a widow. And the Lord put Onan to death as well. So Judah's so wicked, he's now lost two wicked sons who've been put to death for their wickedness. And then he's supposed to take the third son, Shalah, and give uh, him to Tamar. But uh, Judah, since he's got two dead sons, he's concluded that, that Tamar's the problem. And so he's not going to give his third son Shalat to her. Uh, rather, he holds him back. And he is what Judah says, go be with your dad. Off you go, you poor widow. We won't take responsibility for you. And he says, you know, I'll send Sheila later, Shalat later. He never meant to. But then later, um, sometime later, uh, Judah uh, is sh- uh, shearing the sheep with all the men. And it's, it's the time where uh, lots of money is flowing and lots of liquids are flowing. And they go and they shear the sheep and they go and they shell, s- sell all the wool. Um, and everyone has a really big festive time, a little too big of a time. And uh, Tamar knows where Judah is. She knows what state he's in. And she knows that he, she, he has not given Sh- Shalah, his thirdborn son, to her. And so um, she's been wearing her widow's garments quite faithfully. But since Judah's there and she knows his character, she takes off her widow's garments and puts on the garments of a woman uh, who's going to do the wrong kind of thing with the wrong kind of men in the wrong kind of places for money. And so uh, that happens. So Judah is with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, in that kind of situation. And Tamar conceives. That's how she gets in this genealogy. Tamar conceives. And Judah does nothing about it. He, he doesn't think he's been with Tamar. He doesn't think he's been with his daughter-in-law. He thinks he's uh, been with some, a different kind of woman. But it turns out later uh, that Tamar is pregnant and the word gets to Judah and here's his wonderful response. Let's burn her to death. That's the kind of man he is. But uh, the night he spent with her, um, she had asked him to hand over his ancient world driver's license and social security card. And she had those things. And just before they're going to put her to death, she has them presented to Judah. And she says, I wonder if you recognize these things. And Judah says something that's really wonderful. He says, she's in the right, not I. And then Judah actually has a really big turnaround in his life toward the end of the book of Genesis. So that's the Judah and that's the Tamar in this genealogy. How does a husband and wife, how does a man and his daughter-in-law like that conceiving a son like that, Perez and Zerah, that's who are conceived, who are in this line, how do they get in this story? See, it conclusively shows us that that we're the kind of people like Judah, unfaithful, in desperate need of a king. But there's another big king in the story, and that's King David. And we're told that King David uh, had a son named Solomon, the temple-building son of David. Um, And then Matthew doesn't say Bathsheba's name. Now, lots of us in here know that Uriah's wife is Bathsheba, but Matthew doesn't want to skip over this. He doesn't want us to skip over it. Uh, he, he, he was an accountant. He's pretty good with details. He, he did not forget Bathsheba's name, but he wanted to just put our nose in it for a bit, just so we would not forget that Solomon was born through David, King David, in his most unfaithful moment when he was with another man's wife. 
And Solomon is in this genealogy. Don't you know that King David, uh, um, he, he, had, he had been very successful. He had won many great battle, battles. He was the king after God's own heart and the shepherd from Bethlehem. He was the right king in the right moment doing the right things until he was resting on his laurels and he sent his army out. And as he stayed back in his home and looked down from his roof, he saw a very beautiful woman that did not belong to him. And he took her. That was Uriah's wife. And then it turned out that she became pregnant and David couldn't stand to be found out publicly. So he arranged for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed in a fight. He, 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 he tried other things first, but when he was desperate, he eventually uh, had him put to death. That's who King David is. That's the truth about him. That's the truth about Judah and Tamar. That's the truth about David and Uriah's wife. So you tell me, how will the blessing come through this royal line? How is God going to bless people like Judah and David and you and me? How will the blessing come through a family like this? Because God had a son to send. God never makes a promise to bless Abraham if he doesn't have a son to sin. God's in no covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unless he has a son to sin. God doesn't make promises about the line of Judah and he never raises up David and forgives that psalm writing King David all of his sins if he doesn't have a son to sin. But here's the heart of Christmas. God had a son to sin and he sent him into this story. He sent him to be Related to these people, he sent him to save people like you and me. You and I are rescued by a king who lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And the blessings, all the blessings that God has promised, they come to you and me in Christ Jesus if we believe in him because the curses that we deserve through our disobedience fell on him. He was born for that reason, and we'll say more about that here in a few hours when you come back to sing Silent Night with me. Jesus came as the answer to enormous promises. The promises he keeps are impressive, not the people he saves. If we're celebrating an impressive king like this, we'd wanna have feasts. I hope you'll have some big feasts today and the days to come and remember the king. If we're celebrating an inclusive kingdom like this, we'd want to include outsiders when we can at our table. I was so encouraged this week. Uh, Phyllis Ham sent a few of us a message. One of our elders and his wife this year, uh, they were sending quiet messages out saying, do you know anyone that's lonely? Do you know anyone who doesn't have a place to go this Christmas? Connect us with them. We want want to have them in in our home. So moved by that. How should we celebrate such a king decisively rescuing us from the conclusive case against us by his decisive action to be our savior? I think we could celebrate through forgiveness and gift giving. Let me ask you, who do you need to forgive? Who might you forgive in a fresh and powerful way today, this year, this season, because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And I think we might want to give each other gifts. That sounds like a pretty good idea. If you know this king and his salvation, I encourage you to maybe give each other some gifts tomorrow. How about that? Let's pray and meet the king at his table. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for all of your gifts, especially the giving of your son.
Now we would have deep and rich fellowship with him in this sacrament by faith. Grant, us to, grant it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.